You're listening to the Give Me Five podcast, episode 30. One. Is this 31? It is now. <laughs> oh. You're listening to the Give Me Five podcast, episode 31. Rush on an uptown train, doors open, and she walks in, she's so This is the Give Me Five podcast, where each week we discuss the things that entertained us, and in some cases, we're lucky enough to talk to the people that created the things that entertain us. And we just got to do that. Stick around, listen to that, check it out. Absolutely fantastic. Author C.S. Umble. It was great. I'm Rob, and as always, I'm here with my co-host Jimmy. Well, hello there. <laughs> I said, I said hello there. I said hello there. They named a dance after me. <laughs> and Greg. Hi. Okay, so today we're going to discuss a debut Western horror novel by C.S. Umble called The Massacre at Yellow Hill. And a little later in the show, we're actually going to be talking to C.S. Umble himself on his writing process. Now, that interview is actually pretty good, and you guys will probably want to stick around for that. Yeah, stick around. Some really, really insightful stuff. Yeah, I learned a ton, and it was just, it was an awesome conversation. And because it was so awesome, it did run a little bit long, so we're only going to really discuss one topic. Yeah. We are still going to give you the five at the end of the at the end of the show, though. Okay, guys, here's your spoiler alert. This is a review show, and we're probably going to spoil some stuff. We'll try to avoid any major spoilers, but um, for example, if you do not know the ending to the massacre at Yellow Hill, well, you can still listen to this because uh, the book just came out, and we really don't have any intention of spoiling it. Also, if you did not know that Jimmy may have a small gnome or dwarf living in his sinuses, then what? Smaller now, but he's still there. And just tugging on things and taking up room. Yeah. Mm. Then uh, you might not want to listen to that either. So, guys, if you want to get in touch with us, you can find us on Facebook by searching for the Give Me Five podcast. As with all of these, that is F-I-V-E spelled out for five. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at Give Me Five Pod. Also on Twitch, Twitch TV forward slash Give Me Five Pod. If you want to shoot us an email, directly hit us up at give me five podcast at gmail.com and if you could leave us a review on itunes or whatever podcast app that you're using we'd really appreciate it so subscribe rate and review if you could please and also we have a store and that store has shirts and stuff and iphone cases very cool stuff you can get our black bill material on rob no, not yet. I have that to not. I have ha- to not want it to get out for it to be blackmail material. Yeah, we. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, I thought I was going to get through that. <laughs> but you can check out our store at Give Me Five Podcast dot And thanks in advance for checking it out. Uh, so, guys, anything new? I found out recently that apparently um, the NBA is starting a NBA 2K league with 
paid players, uh, you know, video game players. And they're, they're, they've got a draft that's coming up soon. Um, yeah, from really? what I understand, it's, it's um, six guys hmm. to a team, and there will be five guys on the court for each team at a time. And when, when I say on the court, you know, uh, it's – Yeah, Virtually. yeah. But um, I – and the only reason I found out about it is because apparently one of my coworkers' son is up for being drafted. So – Really interesting. And, interesting. And, you know, I and when I looked yeah. it up, I found out that the Mavs have the first the first draft pick. You know, I don't understand esports. Like, I know what it is. Mm-hmm. I know people go nuts for it. I don't have an opinion on it because I just underst- I don't understand why it's popular. And it makes me want to possibly someday do an episode of what we do, where we talk to someone that does esports and that likes it and that streams and all that stuff. Because from in my day. Watching someone play video games was just hoping that they would, you know, die in game. So it was my turn because mm-hmm. I wanted the controller. Exactly. Yeah. Well, but, and I can't understand watching YouTube videos about but, it. But then again, that that was also back in the day where games just got harder until you lost. It, it wasn't you weren't really playing against other people. I mean, I don't think that craze really started until like Street Fighter. Um, but most of the games that I played growing up, it was you one-on-one against the computer basically you were going through the game whereas whereas i think it might have started with goldeneye some of the the you know the goldeneye person versus person stuff Uh, four controller slots i want to say that street fighter was before always picked odd job because he was shorter than everyone else and you couldn't shoot him well rob yes you're right the street fighter was on console well before not console, but you know, cabinet in the arcade, well before GoldenEye mm-hmm. came out. But the Nintendo sixty four, the Sega Dreamcast, those brought the multiplayer aspect into the home before you know multiplayer on the internet with consoles. Um, so you know you could play with four friends as opposed to just you know the two mm. normally. Okay, you know what I mean. As as opposed to just playing one on one against each other, right? I've got no new news. Yeah, I've been sick. Yeah, same um, here. I, I I got to watch uh, Gotham by Gaslight. Um, it was it was pretty good. It was fun to watch, and and that's that's all the new news I have. Yeah, I I'm I'm still trying to get over the sinus infection. I'm still, I'm burning through uh, some Jessica Jones episodes, and and uh, that's really about it. But I, th- I think it's time for our new segment. It is the quick hit segment, which we still need to name for. (laughs) Quick hits. It's a segment where we all get to bring up a topic and anyone that has an opinion on that topic can discuss it for one minute, at which point it moves on to the next person to see if they have an opinion. I've got a quick hit for you, and it's one that's pretty close to my heart. The statue was unveiled of the great David Bowie in Aylesbury, where David Bowie first performed as Ziggy Stardust, and less than 24 hours after being unveiled, the site around the statue was vandalized. So that graffiti said R.I.P. D.B. on either side of the statue, and then at the foot of the statue was spray-painted feed the homeless first so vandalism or activism knowing that david bowie himself was quite the philanthropist 
and one of the greatest concerns of his charitable charitable contributions was ending world hunger. So activism or vandalism? So I have some opinions about graffiti in general because I have a lot of people. I know a lot of people that really think of graffiti as art, and I've seen some beautiful graffiti that I would consider art. But if it's in the wrong place and it was not commissioned by somebody and it's on a public or building, or it defaces or or overlays someone else's art, yeah, it's. I don't think it belongs there. Um, also, I don't think that activism should involve telling people and who to what to spend their money on. Because if you look at any feed where someone's like, oh, I donated to the Humane Society, and someone's like, well, why didn't you feed the, the homeless instead or whatever? I don't think that if, if people want to spend their money on a statue, cause it, then that's what it is. And guess what? There's now more money going to be spent to clean up that area that could have possibly gone to feed the homeless. That is my opinion. Let's say you rub vandalism. So I've got one as well. This one's going to be a little bit... A little bit interesting is it's less of an opinion thing and it's more trying to figure something out. So Michael Aiello, who is the creative director for Halloween Horror Nights, uh, his Twitter is at Michael underscore Aiello, and he released a Halloween Horror Night code word for the, I think it's going to be 27 coming up. And the code word was poison and the hint was scene seven splatter. What property do you think that might be? that scene seven is going to be splatter. Um, I guess I'll go uh, with my response to that. Um, splatter. I'm guessing maybe something from Saw. I don't know. I, I really don't like those films. So that's my guess. Yeah, Saw's my guess. I actually think I figured it out. I think because of the, the hint, the code word is poison. I think it's going to be the trick or treat scene with the kid who's been poisoned and throwing up because I know there's going to be a trick or treat haunted house. And they did it in as a, a terror, a fright zone or scare zone in the past one. So I think that's what it is, but we'll see, I guess. So I, I've got one more. Uh, Netflix shows have been banned from the con film festival. And there's also been chat from some major directors that Netflix movies um, shouldn't be able to get Oscars. What do you feel about that? Well, I think that's pretty stupid. Um, I think the Cannes Film Festival uh, doesn't speak to me, um, so I could care less what they do there. And in, it doesn't influence me at all when I see, oh, it's official selection at the Cannes Film Festival because I think that's like really hoity-toity and richy-rich. But as far as Netflix films not being accepted for Oscars, uh, it's pretty stupid because they're getting up there. Uh, they're great. They should be considered for not just best, best picture, best director, but graphics, costume direction, cinematography, audio. I, I mean, there's so many, you know, great films out there. Then, you know, I think that's stupid. I, what? Because they're streaming, that doesn't qualify it. That's dumb. Um, I, I feel, and I've always felt like the Oscars and like the film festivals and stuff are all kind of like a self-serving thing where they, um, they, you know, it's, it's basically a bunch of, yeah. of, privileged people patting themselves on the back. Um, I, maybe not so much the Cannes Film Festival, but to me, the, the, the Cannes Film Festival has always seemed like a, um, a uh, thing where the, the most avant-garde thing wins, and it doesn't necessarily have to be a, uh, like something that you or I would necessarily consider quality. You know what I mean? 
or or say, oh, well, that's that's really good. But no, it's it's one of those things where the weirder it is, the better it does kind of thing. You know what I mean? No, I agree. It's it, whenever con film festival is mentioned to me, it's a bunch of people walking around with wine glasses going, no, oh, that was fantastic. You know, just to sound smart to each other, I guess. I agree with you. It's like Gummo was an official selection of the 1997 con film yeah. festival. Like, that movie sucked. It was gross and weird. The reasoning is that um, major studios, in order to get a movie into the theaters, have to go with big budget movies. Um, it has to be, you know, popcorn movies, so to speak. Um, and very rarely do the smaller movies and the, the, the things that usually win awards get made. Occasionally they do, but most, most of them, in order to get the budget, is going to be a Marvel movie or a, you know, mm-hmm. giant big budget movie. Um, however, on Netflix, Amazon, Hulu, whatever, because of the subscriber base, it's actually, it's actually in a way cheaper and easier to make the higher quality movie. But at the same time, I, I still don't see a problem with them being in up for the awards. You know, the studios have the ability because it's just an award. The studios have the ability to make those movies if they want. And if not, they don't get an award. Oh, well. So I think that if it's a movie, I want it to be, you know, I want to have the biggest, broadest category possible so that I can get the best. I mean, I also don't think directors should be making films to win awards. Um, Whatever that has to play into it. But good for them if they do. Not too long ago, I saw a Reddit post in the horror section that was asking for people to possibly read and review a brand new horror novel. And it was a Western horror or weird West, as I've heard people say. Yes. And I contacted the author. I was like, this would be awesome. We definitely love horror on our show. And would you be willing to send it to us? So he sent us a PDF copy about a month ago, and all three of us had a chance to read it. Yep. And the auth- the author's name, as we said before, is C.S. Umble. The book's name is... Massacre at Yellow Hill. I really enjoyed this book. Oh, so did I. It 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 actually was very, very interesting, and it kept me reading. It. I was I was a little surprised. It wasn't terribly long, but no. that made it for just a absolute breeze read through. Because man, a lot of good stuff. It was my thought too. Yeah, uh, it was it was thorough, and it cut out a lot of the junk. Like it didn't have a lot of descriptions. It didn't have a lot of. It let you form your own opinions about the characters rather than telling you what to think about the characters. Mm-hmm. And it was yeah. Um, yeah, it was set in an old west town, and there was something afoot, or something is amiss. At the Circle K. In a mine. <laughs> at the, there was no Circle K, but something was amiss in, in the mine. Had really strong characters, you know, the mine foreman, not a very nice guy. A widow, uh, her children, and what I would believe is the heroes of the story. Yeah, the heroes, yes. Uh, Carson, Ptolemy, and... Gilbert Ptolemy, his Gilbert. father. Yep. So what did you think of the, the dynamic between the characters and how they were presented? It, for me, it, it it jumped around a little bit, but once I got used to the, to it jumping around, and I, I actually expected um, the Millers to be a little bit more involved in the story. Um, mm-hmm. Because to me, it seemed like the, the, um, the main characters were, of course, Gilbert and Carson. And well, and then the, and then of course the villain, but you know, it's, yeah, I think where it leaves you, I think those, the Millers might 
take a larger part if there's something in the future with the story, which I definitely hope there is. I, I really hope so as well. But yeah, you know, Tabitha Miller, she is the, well, it, it takes place very early in the book, uh, within the first couple of pages. Her husband is a minor and he passes away under mysterious circumstances, I guess. So the, the industry in the town is mining and that's, that's kind of where everyone works. And Tabitha Miller, yeah, you know, she's a, she becomes a really strong character and you, you kind of expect more from that, but it, it does have to go in and introduce the Ptolemies as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When they arrive, I, I immediately felt comfortable with them. Like I get that they, you know, there was bad things going on, you know, people dying under mysterious circumstances and these guys ride into town and you immediately felt like, okay, they're going to be on the side of good. Mm hmm. And they're going to fix something, or at least do their best to try. And and it seemed like there was an there was another story in there with um with Carson and being that he's so young. Uh, obviously, the the two characters uh, it's a uh, Gilbert and Carson. Carson is the young boy, and Gilbert is the is the older gentleman. And Gilbert is a freed slave. And yes, yes. yes. And essentially, they've been together so long and cared for each other so long that Gilbert actually has become a surrogate father to Carson, who is who is also a young white boy. And in the in the world in which they currently live in, um, you know, I, I believe it's almost immediately post slavery. Correct. The just after the Civil War. Yeah, I think so. Okay, yeah, because. People in the saloons and whatnot are not quite sure what to make of these two. Right. And I think at one point they even talk about uh, some of the people that they've interacted with were on the losing side of the of the war. So it, it's recent enough after the war that that people who fought in it are still alive. So there's there's a lot of interaction there with uh, people and how they how they view Carson and uh, Gilbert's relationship. But um, they they very quickly become the the focal point of the story, as opposed to the Millers, and that that's what I was saying. I, I thought that the Millers were going to play a little bit of a larger role in it than than what they actually did. But all in all, I mean the 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 story still worked. I thought it was great. One of the things I really liked about this story was how well the action sequences were written. Mm -hmm. And coming from the comic book world and reading a lot of comics and talking to a lot of people that have written comics or want to write comics, one of the things that I had learned was that when there's an action sequence in a comic, you want there to not be a lot of conversation, not a lot of word bubbles. So you don't want yeah. you don't want you want the comic book to read faster in the parts where there's something fast going on. And slower in the parts when something something slow is going on, and then you pace things out like that. Yeah, that's a, really that's a huge that is a huge turnoff for me in comic books during action sequences. I'll I'll be flipping the page really quick. There'll be something awesome happening. There'll be a fight, and then I don't even have to read it. I'll just see the blurb or the the bubble, and it'll be huge. And I'll go, man, ah, really? You're gonna break it up like that? And, and yeah, it'll this, be like someone jumping out of a window and they'll have like six word bubbles. And you're like, how fl how slow are you falling <laughs> or how high up is this window? Yeah, exactly. And I think there were there were so many action sequences in Massacre at Yellow Hill 
that, yeah, you look at it and you go, man, this is only a hundred, you know, just short of 200 pages. And it read that fast. I, I want so much more. I, I don't, I'm not saying that like I wanted so much more out of the story. I just want it to continue. I, I chewed through that maybe three to four days. Yeah, I want to explore that world more. Now, now my question as far as far as the 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 length of the book and where the book ended, because because be prepared um, if it ends where where I finished reading, it's it's kind of a cliffhanger. Um, <laughs> Definitely. Well, I think that well was my my, que- my question is, is because ahead. where where the book left off. Um, I, I, because I believe we had, we had access to it before it actually was released. Um, was, was it, we did. was it a snippet or part of the book that we had access to, or was that the entire book? Because, because the way it, we, we had the whole thing. Oh, I was going to say, yeah, we the, had way, the, the way it ended yeah, off, it could have <laughs> been either one, you know, it could have been, okay, well, that's where we're going to end it from here. And you can, you know, pick up the, the book to get the rest of it. Well, it does tell the entire well, story. It just leaves all of the characters with something to do and somewhere to go, which yep. leads yeah, me to definitely. believe. And after talking to the author, there is somewhere for them to go. Yeah, for sure. And I, I can't, I can't wait for, for more, you know? Um, so in, in the book, there's, there's actually multiple monsters. Um, yeah. And there, there's, there, there's, there's a little bit of a, there's a little bit of a mix because some of them are like classic monsters. I mean, you've got your, you've got your vampires, obviously. Um, but it also seems like there's almost, uh, extra dimensional monsters. And, and when we were talking with C.S. Umble, he actually referred to it as a cosmic horror. Um, very, very Lovecraftian, if you will. Yeah. There's and, a lot of talk in other reviews of the book and talking to him just about really how horrible Lovecraft was. And while this is a sort of a Lovecraft-esque story, mm-hmm. there is a mm-hmm. concerted effort to have female characters and African-American characters pushed to the forefront because Lovecraft was not a very nice person when it came to race relations. Yeah. Yeah. And, but some, some of the monsters, um, in addition, seem to have that, that, um, otherworldly feel to them, not necessarily, um, the supernatural, like the, the vampires and the werewolves and stuff like that. But, um, just, just like otherworldly, almost like, um, like, uh, I mean, the, the best way that I can think of to describe it is like the, the whole, uh, Cthulhu mythology. Um, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not terribly familiar. Um, almost like something was awoken in the bowels of this mine, whether it was on purpose or by right. accident. Right. Well, and there's, there's talk, well, there's, you know, in the book, it identifies certain monsters, and I, I know what you mean by the classic ones, but it also makes mention of, you know, other ones coming, spilling out of this rift. So I, I think that, you know, Pandora's box has kind of been open. Extra, extra dimensional. So That's the concerned. word I was looking for. <laughs> yeah, right on. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how C.S. Humble paints some more of these creatures, some more of these monsters, and to see, you know, how different they might be and and how they're going to fight and how the action sequences are going to play out. Cool. So I think for our listeners out there that like horror, I would highly suggest this book. Uh, it's called Massacre at Yellow Hill. And, you know, we've talked a little bit about how it was a quick read, but it's a great read. It is. And it's a it's fun. It has moments that are terrifying, which you'll hear from Jimmy later on. 
Mm-hmm. And if you want something, you know, something good to read over the summer, something good to take your mind off of stuff for, you know, for very, a few minutes. Not even very well summer. written. And and to say that it's to say that it's a quick read doesn't necessarily mean that it's it's because it's a short book because it's it's one of those books that you pick up and you start reading and you don't want to put it down. Um, you can Absolutely. you can read through you can read through it you know and and be like man oh what it what a, how did oh and and it it just it just fly and the, the best way that I can describe it is like when you've seen like um what was that what was that first one that the uh, the the first um, Lord of the Rings movie where you did fellowship yeah you didn't realize that you had been sitting there for like three and a half hours and when it ends you're like no 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 no. There has to be more. <laughs> Wait, you mean I've been here for three and a half hours? Hold on. So, yeah. so yeah, it's it it's it's one of those very engrossing novels. And uh, again, it's it's just came out this past week. It is available from Black Rose Publishing. You can find it at BarnesandNoble.com. You can find it at Amazon.com. I believe there is a Kindle version and more information about where the book is available from the author in a second. And we will, of course, put those links in our show notes and on our Facebook page. And we'll be back in one second with our interview with C.S. Umble, the author of Massacre at Yellow Hill. Uh, so we're here with C.S. Umble, the author of The Massacre at Yellow Hill, which just came out from Black Rose Publishing. And uh, welcome to the show. Thank you guys so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. We're real glad you could make it. So uh, earlier in the show, we did a little bit of a review of your book. And I will tell you right now that it was posit- positively received by everybody. Wonderful. And uh, we are just happy to have you on and talk to you about just the writing process and your life and the book and what's well, coming up in the future and uh, video games. I'm gonna I'm gonna reserve the positive judgment until I find out whether or not you're gonna George R R Martin us. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've been working on this series for over 35 years, and uh, I've got about eight more books to write, and I have to go see my doctor about a terminal illness that I have. <laughs> that's, that's, that's also known as a Rothfussing. <laughs> right. He, oh, uh, people have, uh, you know, there have been, you know, it probably started with uh, Robert Jordan is probably the most famous with his Wheel of Time series that just kept going and going and going. And, and uh, you know, the thing that, you know, fans and authors don't want to happen, you know, the original artist passes away. And so they have to give it over to uh, another writer, which... From all accounts, uh, Brandon Sanderson did a really good job of finishing the Wheel of Time series. So I'll I'll try not to leave people waiting in the winds. Yeah, well, yeah, now, no, Rob will never let it die. Trust oh, me. Oh no, no, no. But did did Jordan really take like twelve years in between novels? Um, so I'm not exactly sure of the timeline. The Wheel of Time wasn't one of the big series that I got into while it was coming out. Um, but I do know that it took him significant time between each novel. I think the novels range anywhere from, I think it's 700 to 1400 pages each. They are, and I, I may be getting that wrong. Uh, but from everything I understand it, they are enormous, um, epic works. 
Yeah. Well, you know, I've been told many times uh, by even Rob that I need to get on the wheel of time. Oh it's no! It's take a while. It, I, I, don't, have some I don't think it was me. I don't think it was me that told you that because I read the first. I, I think I read the first book or one of the works. I, Eye of the World or something. I hated. Mm-hmm. It. I hated it. Hated, hated it. it. Wow. I, I could not. I could not get through the first half of the book. I ended up putting it down because I just. I. I couldn't get into it. Wow, you're the. You're probably the second person I've ever heard who said they couldn't get into Wheel of Time. But you know, to each their own. Yeah. Well, I, I'm, and I'm not a hundred percent sure, certain it was a wheel of time, but I mean, if that's the only thing that the, like the only series that he's ever written, it had to be, but, um, it was the, the title of it was like eye of the world, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That is the, uh, that is the first book in the series. Oh, okay. Well, we've already established in previous episodes that I am un-American. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This he went true. off on a tangent, making fun of baseball and Billy Joel at the same time. And I was. <laughs> And how much he doesn't like live music. What kind of are we dealing with here, fellas? <laughs> what is this, some type of Bolshevik revolution yeah, going exactly. on in here? You're Maybe joining the comrades. <laughs> oh, man. That episode will never see the light of day. It's It was our one of our first attempt test recordings, which we did, I think, three of. And they're they're hidden away until the day that we decide to do a uh, the, the DVD box set. Or the of day course. I decide to run for office. Exactly. Behind oh. the music with the Give Me Five podcast. <laughs> Billy Joel sucks. <laughs> <laughs> oh man, perfect. So, so anyway, uh, now that you know that we're horribly un-American, uh, tell us about yourself. Well, um, I guess uh, the best way to put it is uh, I'm a American author. Um, I live in East Texas um, with my wife and two kiddos. Um, or do I? For anonymity purposes. I know. The question mark. Um, so uh, I've been uh, writing professionally for about the last 10 years, um, working to build a tool set. Um, I always felt like I was going to eventually become a novelist, uh, but I needed to be able to, or I needed to build all of the you know, requisite skills to be able to actively and do or I guess not actively, but to be able to do that well. Um, and so the massacre at Yellow Hill represents uh, the first novel, um, certainly not the first novel I ever started writing, uh, but it is the it is the first of my uh, completed uh, works that I have available. And what was that feeling like? Finishing a novel, um, at least for me, um, was one of uh, best way to put it would be when you finish uh, something like that, um, because I think it took me four, f- six, six months to finish the first draft. And it's not a terribly long novel either. Mm-hmm. Um, um, that feeling is what can only be described as a professional ecstasy. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it's a spectacular feeling uh, to feel it or to feel and then the next day, you think, "Oh wait, now I have to edit it. I just built the scaffolding, um, and now I actually have to build the house through editing." Because mm. the real work in writing, the easy part is the first draft. At least it is for me. Because you, you know, I sort of, I'm one of these uh, by the pantsers. I don't do a, a whole lot of um, architecture before I just start writing. Gotcha. Um, and uh, 
And so once you get it all down on paper, uh, then you get to go back, you leave it in the drawer for a time. Uh, don't look at it. You get away from it, divorce yourself from it as much as possible. And then uh, when it's time, you go back and you start reading and you see what you're working with. Hmm. It's a really interesting way of doing that. I've, I don't follow, I mean, I don't know too many authors, but that's the first time I've heard that. Yeah, that I know a lot of, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I was going to say, a, a lot of the authors that I've followed and that I'm anxiously awaiting, you know, the follow-up <laughs> novel <clears throat> for authors, um, they, they talk about their, they talk about their, their writing process a lot in like their blogs and stuff. Cause, cause I, I periodically check to see if there's any new reports on, on the progress of the books that I'm waiting for and whatnot. Um, and, and they spend a lot and a lot of time outlining stuff and then researching stuff and then doing other things. And yeah, it, and, 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 and I totally, I totally understand where they come from, why it takes them so long. Right. But then when the, and, and I understand, but you know, being the reader, I also understand the impatience of all of their fans waiting for the next book and seeing that they've set that project down and gone on to another one. And they're like, Oh, you know, we're working on this now. And it's like, well, but you know, we're still waiting for this book. <laughs> right. And you know, Martin, Martin, especially George R. R. Martin is uh, notably a very slow writer. Um, the same, I think is true with Rothfuss. Um, and one of my, mm -hmm. one of my favorite writers who, you know, is a guilty pleasure of mine is Shelby Foote, uh, who was a historical novelist who wrote what is considered to be the definitive narrative of the civil war. Mm -hmm. Um, he writes it from a, he's got a Confederate leaning to him. So it, it has to be taken with that in mind, but, uh, his three volumes are over a million words. I think it's a million sixty thousand for all three volumes. Wow. And he was he notably wrote maybe two hundred words a day. Oh. It took him set it took him seven times it took him seven times the amount of time to write about the Civil War than it took for the Civil War to actually be fought. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh the, oh, the hate letters Rob would send him. <laughs> <laughs> Dear hey. Shelby Foot, yeah. hurry up! I'm gonna put my <laughs> foot in. Never mind. Wow, that oh boy, the late Shelby Foot. Yeah. yeah. So, um, let's see. I want to know about your some of your inspirations behind writing. Um, you know, as the, the listeners heard us talk a little bit about the the novel earlier, with no spoilers. Definitely don't want to ruin any of the scares and stuff like that. <laughs> Naturally, but I do. Yeah, you know, I'm wondering, like, you know, other than what you just mentioned, um, what do you read? What do you watch? What do you, you know, draw inspiration so, from? Yeah, what do you draw inspiration from? You know, it's such a it's such a big question. You know, I read my first novel uh, when I was 11 years old. It was Stephen King's The Eyes of the Dragon uh, oh. that, that was given to me so by good. my by my late uncle. Um. And it was from that moment that I, I wanted – that book really took me to a place imaginatively that only horror movies up until that point had been able to take me to. Um, I draw inspiration from the idea of family. That's a very big theme in pretty much everything I write, and I mm -hmm. get that from uh, Steinbeck. Um, Steinbeck okay. was an enormous influence for me, Stephen King. 
uh, Joe R. Lansdale, his Jonah Hex series uh, that he wrote for DC. Pretty much anything uh, Joe R. Lansdale puts out, um, uh, I read. I wanted the Jonah Hex movie to be so much better than it was. Yeah, and it just, it just <laughs> yeah. wasn't. We, I know. And there was one scene, I, I'll never forget, I was watching it, where uh, uh, Turnbull is going to, uh, spoiler alert for anybody who hasn't watched this seven-year-old movie or however old it is, um, he looks over at Hex and he's got he's got Hex's wife and he goes, I want you to see this. And then he slams the door so Jonah Hex <laughs> cannot see what is going on. It's one of the dumbest things I've ever seen in a movie. I want you to see this, but too bad you can't. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, so, so just listen instead. <laughs> <laughs> so just hear the gunshot go off. Um, I draw a big inspiration from uh, Lansdale. Cormac McCarthy is an enormous influence on uh, me. Um, the road, yeah, absolutely the road. Um, one of the greatest. Talk about dusty, dry landscape in oh. like without it getting boring. Like every chapter is about that, but that he finds new ways to talk about just how bleak it is. Absolutely, um, and the road is uh, the road is one of the greatest um, horror novels ever written. Now it won't ever be categorized under horror because you know. Because he doesn't use punctuation and he writes in a, po- you know, the poetic uh, form. Mm-hmm. Uh, but The Road is one of the greatest horror novels ever. It's probably, I mean, I don't, I don't want to go too crazy, but it's one of the top five post-apocalyptic novels that you'll ever read. Mm. Um, yeah. The big work from McCarthy that affected me the most was Blood Meridian, um, which is his historical novel um, about a group of Indian hunters who come across this sort of Gnostic archon known only as the judge. And it goes through, through the atrocities, um, the historical atrocities of this group called the, I think it's the Blanton gang. And, uh, and the character, the judge is probably the singular, aside from the whale and Moby Dick, he's the single most, powerful entity i've ever read inside of a novel Hmm. it it is absolutely um the book affected me (laughs) a great every time we talk to an author and we we seem to have that happen a little more than we i guess thought when we started doing this um they always give us a list of books that is uh getting longer and now i have to read all of them thank you (laughs) um McCarthy is a huge influence. Steinbeck, Michael Chabon, uh, uh, Arthur Conan Doyle with his uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. Holmes is my favorite literary character. Um, Shakespeare, oh, Shakespeare is an enormous influence for me. Um, there are times when I was working on The Massacre at Yellow Hill where my editor, Rob Bass, I told him, I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm like, I'm like reading through some of Shakespeare's like Henry V stuff. And I'm reading through um, certain parts of Titus Andronicus to try to give me this sort of tragic feel that I want. And uh, the problem with that is you read Shakespeare and then you get, you close the book and you go, why am I even trying to do this? Someone has already done it better. Why am I doing I need to just give up now. This is... (laughs) Right. And you just have to accept you are who you are. You're not him. Move forward. Do the best that you can. Yeah, I think um, The Road definitely had an effect on me. I think it was the first book that I actually ever read that I experienced physical pain. Mm. Um, yeah. 
it just hurt to move after reading. He got a paper cut from it. You know, it was just a little one. <laughs> no, the book literally drew yes. blood. Yeah, no, it was like watching the first season of True Detective. Um, mm, one of my favorite television shows of all time. Awesome. Um, I, I, a, a coworker who recommended it, uh, True Detective to me said, "Don't watch more than two episodes at a time." Absolutely. And I, I feel very much that at least from what I've read from Cormac McCarthy, it's uh, very much the same. It absolutely comes from that sort of Gnostic cosmic horror, you know, the idea that, you know, Lovecraft mm -hmm. talks about this, the idea that, you know, man is a tiny infantile creature living on this island of cosmic insignificance. And that's something that Russ Cole really pulls from. Um, especially in the scene, uh, not to go on too much of a tangent, but the, the sure. scene where they're at the revival and the, and the pastor is preaching and, uh, Russ, I think he says, if I recall, he says, what is, what does it say about life that people have to listen to fairy tales to feel better about themselves? Yep. And this is like when he's in the middle, like, and, <laughs> and then, uh, uh, what's the, uh, the partner played by Woody Harrelson, um, he says, can you see Texas from that high horse of yours? You know, they, they have this great back and forth about the, the merits of religion, how, yeah. you know, from their perspective. And that's, that's something that's, that's very much something that comes out of Lovecraft's, Lovecraft's tradition, something now that Thomas Ligotti is doing, um, who might be the modern master of cosmic horror, people like Laird Barron. Um, do it very, very well. So, especially now, cosmic horror is becoming, it's very, very popular right now. Hmm. Yeah, I've, uh, it was weird. I, you know, going down th through your book and then reading other reviews of it and things like that, there was a lot of uh, mention of Lovecraft and Lovecraftian mm -hmm. and cosmic horror. And it's something I'd never heard the term specifically. So it mm -hmm. almost, you know, I was like a layman. I'm like, I'm like, I have to look this up. I find it interesting. And then it also, right kind of reminded me like especially Lovecraft he's he's talked about in such awe that you kind of forget he was actually a person it's like it you know it, it seems like he was <laughs> right. always around you know right absolutely he his so to be clear and to be fair um Lovecraft is one of the most influential authors in horror it is it is also we have to say in the same breath to be intellectually honest he was an inveterate racist um and that is something that um, something that people who love Lovecraft, which I'm one of those people, I love his stories and it becomes difficult to divorce ourselves from his ridiculously over the top sentiment towards, um, people who were not white. Um, and that's something that pe uh, people like Victor Laval, who wrote uh, the Ballad of Black Tom, which is a spectacular, um, story, uh, a Lovecraftian story told from the perspective um, of an African-American. Um, and if people haven't, I definitely suggest that they uh, check that out, because I think that that's an excellent interpretation of Lovecraft's, Lovecraft's cosmic horror through that lens. I have added it to my list. My very... <laughs> the ever-expanding list. Ever list. I have as well. I'm going to take a year off and just I, go live in a cabin somewhere. <laughs> I'm... I'm yeah. Unfortunately, hey, I'm at the uh, point where if it well, doesn't sound inaudible, I, 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 no, it doesn't happen. Oh, you can absolutely get the Ballad of Black yeah. Tom on Audible. I did. 
I'm I'm taking a a very small literary break, I guess you could say, mm-hmm. um, from getting too too deep into a huge time commitment because I have such a long list. I'm reading uh I'm finally reading Sandman Overture, mm. um, as a, as a little kind of hey I can look at pictures while I do this mm-hmm. kind right. of deal. Well, we did a thing for our birthday episodes where we assigned stuff, and Jimmy got assigned a book uh, called The List of Seven by me, which is um, – it wasn't out in publication very long, but it was um, about Sir Arthur Conan Doyle is kind of before he wrote Sherlock, and it was like him running mm-hmm. into all of that stuff that eventually became the plot points of his later books. Um, so he was like the hero right. of the book, and the guy actually went on to write Twin Peaks, the show, but – Oh wow! But it's, it was really hard to find. Now it's actually available, and I had a I had a paperback copy of it. But so I did that, and then Rob assigned us a book for his birthday episode, where one of his favorite books. It's probably my somewhere. it's probably my favorite series to date. The uh, Furies of uh, it's the Codex Alera, but the first book is by Jim Butcher. It's the Furies of Calder. Oh, yes. Jim Butcher! That is, yeah, that is yeah, my favorite. Se- probably my favorite series to date, even more so than like Harry Potter or the Lord of the Rings or anything like that. I love the world that he created there. Okay, okay, let's slow <laughs> down. Let's slow down. <laughs> no, no, no. Um, I, lo- I love Jim Butcher. Um, I, I haven't ever had a chance to check out his Codex Alera stuff, but I love yeah. the Dresden Files. Yeah, I, I lo- think that they're I wonderful. Just finished White Knight tonight, actually. Which mm, which one is that? That's one? a great what number. One. It's like is that no, it's five? Much later. It's like seven. Yeah. I'm gonna I'll, keep going higher because because I want to say that I up to the ones that, all the ones that I've read four is probably still my favorite. The summer night, summer night it, when he introduces yeah. the fair folk, yeah, it, uh, with Mav is absolutely yeah. fantastic. That's that's currently my favorite one in the Dresden Files series. But at, for a series as a whole, um, the Codex Alera is probably my favorite series. Yeah, White Knight doesn't want the big mm. ghoul battle. If you right, so that's that without any spoilers whatsoever, really. But um, we've now talked about a bunch of I other authors it. and a bunch of other books. I want to talk a little more about your book. Yes, and and more importantly, <laughs> okay. is there stuff coming? <laughs> is is there more stuff coming? Yeah. Are we preventing you from finishing we'll up book to... two right now because we will hang up immediately? <laughs> Slow down, Rob. Uh, Slow down. So I, I will say um, that the story about what happened in Yellow Hill is not the last story in that sort of cosmology. Okay. That is good to hear. I'm really glad to hear that. <laughs> right. And uh, well, that answers one of our questions from our lovely list of questions here. Um, Jimmy, go ahead with your uh, with your next question. I think we kind of talked it about uh, talked about it, touched on it a little bit, I guess, but. You mentioned that up until the Eye, Eye of the Dragon, um, no, no, nothing else could really take you to that point that horror did. Right. So prior to that, I mean, what, what was it about that genre? Uh, I know Greg and myself are big horror fans. Oh, absolutely. Uh, and, and I, I do have a separate question after reading that. Um, how did you feel when you read other Stephen King work? If that was the first novel you read oh, by boy. him. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, the, uh, so The Eyes of the Dragon was number one. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I didn't really pick up – so I I didn't really pick up books again until I got into college. Um, I, was a, I was a sort of lazy reader um, mm-hmm. at that point. 
Um, but the next book that I read by Stephen King was when I was 19 and I read The Gunslinger um, as oh. the first book in The Dark Tower. Yes. Um, and then I went on a, a t- uh, just a, a red line through my life where I was reading, you know, It and Salem's Lot. Yep. Um, Pet Cemetery, mm-hmm. Cujo. I mean, all of the, yeah, I mean, everybody knows the, the rundown of King's bibliography. Yep. But, um, King, uh, King really hit me hardest with, um, maybe the book that affected me the most of his was It. Uh, that was actually, uh, it's just a brutal story. Um, and there are issues with it, you know, that people have. Um, it was very powerful for me. Um, but really, Ever since I was about six years old, not six, maybe eight, um, ever since I was eight years old, I've been chasing a feeling, um, mm. from horror. And if I can, if you guys, if you guys don't mind, I'll tell you, uh, where that comes from. Um, when I was eight years old, we were growing up in a small West Texas town. I'm the son of a, uh, of an oil field worker. Uh, and so we moved around some of the boom towns of West Texas, uh, many times when I was growing up. We were living in this little city, uh, called Snyder, Texas, home of the Snyder Tigers, uh, <laughs> state football champions, 1942. Wow. I've, um, I've driven through Texas <laughs> and, uh, the long uh, way. And uh, yeah, th- that is the only way to drive through Texas. But I digress. You start, start talking about Texas. Yeah, you, you get a text and tar- start talking about Texas. They'll never <laughs> shut up. Um, Not you. I blame Greg. So we were we were living, like I said, in a small West Texas town. Um, and uh, my mom, uh, my dad was out working. My mom needed to be out for the day. So my brother and I, um, that previous night, we went to this place called Movie Stop. This is even before Blockbuster was a huge thing. And of course, Schneider, Texas has about 6,000 people. So there's no Blockbuster. Um, we go to this place called Movie Stop and my mom, uh, she rents my brother and I a VCR. Um, for those of you who are too old to know what a VCR is, you put a cassette tape inside of the VCR and, uh, it would play films for you. Uh, I remember, I remember when you could rent the, uh, VHS players. Right. That, and that's, that's yeah, what we do. <laughs> and, uh, so my, so we, uh, my mom, uh, they, uh, she leaves for the day. My brother and I getting set up. We're both in our underoos, right? It's about eight 30 in the morning. We, we set the VCR up to the television and we plug it in. Now VCRs at the time had an auto rewind feature. Uh, and all of this is true. Like I tell this story to people and they're like, that's bullshit. There's no way that it happened this way, but this is the way that it happened. Um, so we plug it in and immediately the VCR starts to go and it starts rewinding. And my brother and I are looking at our copies of the movies that we rented and we're like, we haven't put anything in the VCR. Someone had left a VHS tape inside. And whenever they turned it back in, you know, the, the clerk or the attendant didn't check the VCR. Cause you know, you can't get inside. And, <laughs> and, uh, so it's, and I'll never forget. So the television is static. Cause that's uh-huh. what used to happen. Right. You know, it's just, mm-hmm. and it clicks and it starts playing. And immediately I see new line cinema. 
and it was a recorded movie or it was it was a VHS tape that someone had recorded off of um either HBO or whatever it had come on but it was a recording and it and it goes and it says a nightmare oh, on boy. elm street so nice had, and and so there's this palpable moment where i'm 8 years old <laughs> i have never seen a freddy krueger movie but i know who freddy krueger is from conversations with friends who were stupid enough at eight to watch A Nightmare on Elm Street. <laughs> so the movie starts playing and you see Robert England, you know, he, Freddy Krueger's making the glove in the scene. And I'm like, we're, and I look at my brother, I'm like, we are not supposed to be watching this. Let's this do it. Not allowed. <laughs> and, and my brother's like, no, it's cool, dude. It, it, it's going to be fine. Like, we're, we're just going to watch it. It's going to be fine. Like, he was so hey, man, into it. And then the Robert England gets done. He gets done making the glove. And then the hand comes toward the screen. The screen. And I am, boom, out of the Whoa. den, running into the bedroom. And I'm like, this is not happening. Robert England <laughs> is not. Freddy Krueger will not murder me inside my house. Uh, my brother, unless comes, you fall asleep, unless I fall asleep. So my brother comes in there and he's like, no, we're going to watch it. It's going to be fine. He was so amped about this movie. Um, and we went in, he gave me this toy gun and he said, whenever Freddy Krueger shows up on the screen, you just shoot Freddy Krueger, just shoot him. And I walked in trying to be brave. Both of us just in underwear, you know, cause we're ridiculous. And you know, he's 10, I'm eight. And we watched a nightmare on Elm street and the level of fear that came over me while watching that movie entirely <laughs> too young. Um, that sensation I have, I chase from every single piece of horror that, um, I take in now. I'm, I'm waiting for someone to sort of become this, to reach the height of the place that Kruger, cause Kruger to me represents this, this entity of molestation and horror and granted he became a cartoon character um, mm -hmm. from the original film but what he does in that first film to me or at least what it did to me um, I'm chasing that level of terror in either everything that I write or you know if that's the goal um, or every single horror movie that I now watch that is the best thing well, that I've ever heard. Yeah. It's it's the second best because I, the best was Jimmy taping all kinds of weapons to his body. So yeah, I uh I had a very similar experience the first time I ever saw um Night of the Living Dead. Mm. And as Rob said, I that level of terror that I experienced. I'd seen horror movies before, but this was kind of the first time I was on my own. I was probably a little too old to be that scared but we were like expecting power outages that night so mm. i strapped a bunch of knives and tools to my body <laughs> and it was single-handedly preparing for the impending zombie apocalypse <laughs> the war yeah. <laughs> oh, i was gonna save humanity so <laughs> you have touched on this a, a, a bit you said you know family was very important to you in, in your writing as, as with the work of Steinbeck um, you created a very tight familial bond I think very early in your novel what are some of the other inspirations for the characters that you have are, are there particular figures that kind of help shape 
uh, Gilbert Ptolemy or the really, really hateable Jeremiah Hart, um, <laughs> who I, I really, I hope that in my head when he speaks, he sounds like an evil foghorn leghorn. <laughs> well, 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 I do say that I will eat the heart of the world, my boy. <laughs> An evil foghorn uh, legger. That's interesting. Not um, in appearance, just vocally. <laughs> and as he strode into the room, hunched like a crow, <laughs> Jeremiah Hart was a giant rooster. He p- pulled back his hood so his wonderful plumage could show. And now I'm talking like that. I say, boy, have you ever seen a gobbler like this? <laughs> no, um, they named a no. dance after me. <laughs> um, no, I, I, in writing the book, um, I, uh, the book actually started, um, when I knew I wanted to write a novel, I had started a couple of them. They never turned into anything cause I wasn't ready. Um, I didn't have the tools that I needed. Um, and so I just wrote down on a sheet of paper after a conversation with, uh, a friend of mine uh, who told me, you know, settle in for a long campaign if you're going to be writing novels. Um, and uh, I wrote down on a pad of paper just the massacre at Yellow Hill. And I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know who the people were who were going to be a part of that tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, but I sat down and I just started. Um, and I wanted to start with someone um, – I love writing villains. Um, I think that they are. (laughs) Thank you. Say that. Thank you. Um, I find them delicious to write and uh, writing uh, a character like that. I always, I always have taken the advice um, from my friend, Brad Ellison, who told me it's never a good idea to base a character off of anyone because if they see it, They'll know it's them um, because they identify the thing about them that they know that you know that you put in your book. And now we're going down uh, the Chaucer's uh, Canterbury tale mm-hmm. where everybody's mad at you. <laughs> um, so gotcha. the characters that I write tend to embody an idea. Um, you know, they're, they're physical representations of the thing that matters the most to me when I'm writing are – the promises that a character makes and whether or not that character has the ability to fulfill those promises and what they will do when they break those promises and what that means for the people they love or the people that they despise. Um, and so that's why the massacre at Yellow Hill, um, that's why it sort of begins with this conflict with this evil person um, in what I think is a, a, a pretty good hook. Yeah, it very, um, very early. Just maybe go, damn. <laughs> All right, now I got to find out what happens to this guy. Right. Yeah, I, uh, that's that was that's awesome. one of the points. Yeah, really early on when I really was really impressed with with the writing overall. Um, at one point in my life, I thought I maybe should probably be a writer because I thought about writing movies because. When you're in college around the time that like Tarantino comes out and stuff and everyone becomes a filmmaker. Of course. I was like, right. maybe I'll do that. So I, I looked into and ev- writing. And everybody wants everybody wants to write true romance or everybody yeah. wants to write Pulp Fiction where exactly. characters are just doing power dialogue back and forth with each other. Exactly. And then I was – so I was, when I was reading and the when Jeremiah Hart was introduced, 
and you didn't have to say he's a bad person. You didn't have to say, right. you know, he's a terrible, whatever, just the way he was interacting, the, the story told what the person was. And then later, right. later on in the book, there was another, um, I don't think it, this isn't really spoiling anything, but there was another interaction with, uh, with Carson and, uh, the girl, um, was it Annie at the time? Yeah. Annie. Yeah. yeah. And he's about to, and it just shows his innocence with talking to females, just in the dialogue. Right. And I was like, wow, this is like, I felt that character without having to be told what to feel about that character. And I loved it. Right. Well, I'm, I'm so very glad. Um, you know, one of the great things about being able to write something in a long form, like novel, is that once characters have a shape, once you sort of give them a shape and an outline, um, you get to a point where you're effectively just writing down what they do. Um, you aren't, you know, you know, there are moments where you're like, oh, wouldn't it be great if Annie did this or if this happened? And that's when I think writing starts to get a little wrong headed. You start going in the wrong direction. The characters, they'll tell you who they are. If you give them enough space, if you give them enough freedom, um, that's one of the reasons I can't architect a story uh, because I'm not, uh, you know, I, I'm my particular style doesn't lend itself to saying, well, this guy is going to be this sort of Iago character, not from Aladdin. <laughs> <laughs> and that's exactly what I thought of when you said that. Right. <laughs> No, the Shakespearean, the Shakespearean character. Remember, we do record um, from Orlando, oh. so that kind of taints everything that, that we touch. <laughs> I'm going to have a heart attack and die from not surprise. <laughs> um, no, but, uh, you know, Hart develops, he developed a personality from the very moment he starts interacting with the people around him. Um, and that's, and I'll be honest with you, uh, fellas. That's something that's really special. And there's not a whole lot else in my life in a creative fashion where you start participating in this story with these characters. It's a very, very special thing. And it's also cliche for a writer to say that. And I know that. Um, but, you know, it is still a true thing. No matter how oft spoken it is, it's still a true thing. So I actually have a question to, to build off of that. Sure. And, you you talk about that special connection there. Were I mean, I imagine it kept you up at night. Um, it, it, was it almost kind of waking up every day during the writing process, knowing that oh oh man, I I've got to write this down. You know, would would the story kind of come to you in that way? So, for my particular way that I write, I'm a very ritualistic writer. Um, okay, I. And by that, I mean, I'm a very, I'm a person who needs the schedule. Like I need structure in my life. And when uh, I don't I was hoping have he was going to mention like time. sacrificing a goat, lighting yeah, some yeah, candles. Yeah, yeah, that's what I was thinking. Right. Smearing the well, blood. I have to smear morning, goat blood across my chest before I start writing. goat. Yeah. <laughs> right. And I then I go, and then I go through the Sephiroth. <laughs> now, um, now, uh, so my, so I, I, I have a normal job like everybody else and I work the, 40 to 45 hours a week. Um, and then I spend time with my family. Uh, and then normally when everybody goes to bed, this is less so true now than it used to be. But when I was writing the massacre at Yellow Hill, when everybody else went to bed, when everyone else was asleep, I would put on a pot of coffee 
And, you know, I would have some thoughts throughout the day about the story, but I have to get away from the story because for me, writing is such a, it's such a cliche to say it. It's a very intimate thing. Um, like I'm meeting these people on their terms. Um, I'm meeting them at the same time every day and I'm giving them a chance to tell their story. Um, so I would show up in, you know, at the same time every day, cup of, cup of coffee, get my pipe going, uh, tobacco pipe for those who may be wondering, it's not like a gravity bong or anything. <laughs> um, break out the old skull bong. <laughs> exactly. No, I, uh, I, uh, I, uh, I write specifically on in, I usually do a two, two and a half hour writing period where I'll produce 2,300 words, um, at a steady clip and I'll go through one pipe bowl and two cups of coffee. And I know that when I've reached that point, if I go past that point, whatever I produce afterward is usually not going to be, uh, I'm not gonna be able to keep it. Um, so I try to write every night, um, 2000 words a night. And then on a weekend, I try to get 5,000 to, to 7,500 words, uh, during, you know, a stretch of two and a half hours. And then again, another stretch of an hour and a half. Wow. Wow. That's a really good idea. Yeah. Like I should force myself to do that for graphic design stuff and 3d work. Yeah. I, I, I agree. Uh, there's almost a point where, um, if I'm working on something and I'm kind of forcing myself beyond a point because I, you know, um, that, that it's just, I'll wake up the next day. I'll look at it and go, yeah, no, let me go back for versions. Right. And that's really interesting. It is, uh, you know, I'm not a person of, uh, great, uh, artistic talent. Um, like I, 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 you know, no one, when I was young, no one ever said, wow, what a wonderful story that young boy wrote. Um, most everything that I've come by in terms of writing has been earned. And I, I wear that as a badge of honor. Um, and as my, one of my writing mentors, Brad Ellison, genuinely took me from a place where I couldn't write a complete compound sentence correctly in the English language. Um, and through years and years and years and years of hard work and dedication to being able to tell a story, um, I was finally able to achieve this small section of my life goal of putting out a novel. Wow. I, um, I use so many commas. <laughs> I'm an overcomer myself because of Thomas Jefferson. I'm a I'm a parentheses person. I'm like an aside kind of. I I use far more ellipses than I should. <laughs> dot dot dot. I do a yep. lot. Of, I do a lot of pause. So, uh, you know, you you talk about cutting your teeth on comic books, and mm -hmm. after being a professional writer for ten years and completing your first novel, I mean that's that's really really impressive um thank you and and a badge of honor i mean absolutely when did you know with the massacre at yellow hill you said you you kind of started some other novels before but what mm -hmm. made this the one what what was it about massacre at yellow hill is there a moment or can you not really define it there <clears throat> excuse me there is a moment um at the there's a moment when Tabitha Miller takes center stage um, very early on. It's the second part of the first chapter, which is very short, um, where when when I thought about this woman and what she was going through, it even, I mean, it says it on the back of the 
the back of, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, mm-hmm. the back of the novel, the widow, Tabitha Miller. Yep. Um, when I started writing her, I felt a deep sense of obligation that we were going to explore this woman, her hardship, what it meant to be a widow, um, in a small town, uh, in, you know, post antebellum Texas. Um, and I wanted, I wanted people to, what I hope that people will take away from her story is how courageous she is. Um, how, how her willingness, uh, to take more than what society wants to allow her is Mm -hmm. one of the more heroic, uh, themes inside the book. I think. I agree. (laughs) Uh, there, she is a very strong character. Um, there's a part where she literally takes a pickaxe in her hand (laughs) and marches down the street and you go, damn man, she, you know, in, in such a tough time, it's as tough as, as it already is. Right. You know, she's without saying too much going to do that for her children. Right. And it's, it's a very strong story, you know, hers alone. So well, I'm I'm very I'm very glad that you uh enjoyed it. Um it, it it is my opinion that desperation makes a hell of a character. Mm-hmm. Um it's, it's that is especially true for in at least in terms of my writing mothers, fathers and their children. When desperation comes calling, a character and just like every person has a choice, how will you answer? Yep. Um will you answer? Will you run? Will you hide? Um, what, you know, to use an old West Texas saying, you know, what happens when it comes nut cutting time? No, I know what you meant because what you mean, because I remember, you know, being excited when we were finding out we were having a child, but also like sitting down immediately at Excel and trying to figure out like, well, what am I not going to buy anymore? <laughs> what, what am I changing here? budgetarily because right. I'm not working for myself anymore. I'm working for my family. Right. And it was, you know, it was that night. It was that one of those late nights with the, the pot of coffee and the, okay, let's see how this works. Right. No, absolutely. My, uh, my, my pastor, uh, Steve Wells has a great anecdote. He says, um, becoming a parent, um, suddenly you begin to live life with your heart outside of your chest. Um, and that's right, I think. Um, there is a moment when a man or a woman becomes a, a mother or a father when they realize that their armor that they've been wearing their whole lives, you can't put that on your child. You can only try to protect, but ultimately the world is going to have its way and the world will have its say. And all you can do is try to make promises that you can keep and love ferociously. Yeah, that is 100% accurate. I also like that we've gotten so deep one episode after me finding the fart button. (laughs) (laughs) Levity is important. We we keep them guessing on the Give Me Five podcast. (laughs) And I'm still not convinced that all of those farts were were automated. (laughs) You'll never know. Um, Jimmy, have I ever told you guys that my my dad was a um, a bull rider 
in Lamar, Texas. Lamar, Texas. Yep. I did not know that. Yeah. I did not know that either. I I have pictures. <laughs> I, I'm going to have to see those. Bring those but, in yeah. tomorrow. Um, I want to. I want Jimmy to ask this next uh, question about tomorrow. the uh, the this you know going out and branching out. I know you've you've done comics. Actually, I'm just going to ask it. Sorry, Jimmy, you wrote it. I'm asking it. Uh, you branched out into comics. Right. You, you wrote comics for a while. You said about how many years? Nine or so. Mm-hmm. I've been writing comic books yeah. for about nine years. And then, uh, so do you see the the world of Yellow Hill in uh, comic format or any other formats? Um, I mean, who knows? Um, so I. I I've I've always told myself that I was going to try and keep my prose separate from comic books. I think that the that the massacre at Yellow Hill is it, you know it, it's a medium. The weird west, the weird western, lends itself to comic books, of course. Um, and I, the main thing I would love to see, I would love to see a a film adaptation of it, and not for not just for financial reasons, of course, because that. You know, that would, of course, be a boon. Um, but I, I would love to see a film where the primary characters are people who are under the age of 15, a freed black slave. Uh, I, I guess you would say a, a black freed slave um, and a widow. I th- and I, I would love to see a film. I would it, I think it would be uh, I think it would work very well for something like a 90 minute film, sort of in the vein of. The Burrowers or Bone Tomahawk. Uh, you mentioned two, Which two favorites. We, maybe. <laughs> yeah. No, that's – that – actually, Greg, unless you had a follow-up with that. Uh, not really yet, no. That leads into another question, uh, a, a question that I had specifically about film or you know small or big screen adaptations. I – when I read a novel, I – picture it very vividly and i i could picture when i was reading massacre at yellow hill i could i could feel the dust you know it was was palatable um i could see that world and and i picture it on screen as well and you know what is when you begin to write Mm -hmm. is it like is it like man i'd really love to see this on the screen or is it kind of like after it's done how do how do you feel about that um, when you're, or at least for me, um, when I'm writing, I'm, I, and I get this from reading a bunch of Robert E. Howard stuff when I was developing my, my voice for writing, I do tend to see things in a more cinematic fashion. Um, I okay. love, I love to use a more, you know, in my mind's eye, I tend to use a sort of, uh, John Ford Western, uh, lens. I like, I like landscapes to be big. But I also like to, but I also like to do my character. You could identify the massacre at Yellow Hill, the perfect, uh, John Ford and Clint Eastwood from, uh, Unforgiven because I love tight, um, uh, well drawn out characters that have a lot of regrets and a lot of pain that they have to, to work through. Um, so I'm not sure if that answers your question. I, I don't. I, when I'm writing the book, I don't think, "Oh man, this would make a great scene in a movie." Uh. <laughs> no, you you um made my question make more sense to me by saying that you think of of scenes in a uh, cinematic, you know, seeing that in your mind's eye. So okay, so I'm going to put you on the spot here sure. based on your previous answer, and if you could 
cast your Massacre on Yellow Hill movie with living dead actors, anybody really. Mm. I'm going to name some of the characters and uh, you can go ahead and cast, or you can just tell me to shut up because you don't have a legit answer for it. <laughs> and, and, and I want to, and I want to make sure that you pick at least one living dead person. Yes. One living dead person. Got it. So let's start off with. Is Abe Lagoda still alive? I'm no, not sure. <laughs> I think he actually finally did die. Oh, despite, despite the meme. Yeah. Uh, so let's go with Gilbert first. Who do you oh, see? Gilbert Ptolemy. Um, it would be. I wish Jamie Foxx hadn't played Django mm. and Django mm. Unchained. Um, but I could absolutely see someone like. Um, what is that wonderful actor's name in 12 Years a Slave, Serenity? Um, I can't, oh. can't Brad I recall. Pitt? <laughs> Uh-oh. Yes, that is Brad Pitt from 12 Years a Slave. Now, he is... Uh, uh, Chiwetel Ejiofor, and you're the operative? That is correct. Yes, it's the easy operative. for you to say. Yeah, I know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Chiwetel Ejiofor. It's funny that you said Jamie Foxx, because that's, that's who I was thinking of, but it was also because when I wrote that question today, I was watching uh, Baby Driver in the background. Mm. I was like, oh, is that tainting it but okay moving on uh carson oh man um let me think uh crap you know who would have been really great for him is uh the boy who was in uh neverland with johnny depp asa butterworth butterfield yeah 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 asa butterface No, I can't. Uh, no, I, I think, think if his name was Ace of Butterface, the the agent would have probably changed that. Or the the young boy who is who played Ender in Ender's Game, the film adaptation. Okay. So, so you're you're going wide eyed. I'm seeing on that one. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That makes sense. Absolutely. Yeah, that's Ace of Butterfield. That's the same person. So yes. yeah. So there you go. Yeah. Tabitha. Tabitha Miller. Um, Tabitha Miller would probably be. Played best by um, Diane Lane, an older Diane Lane, uh, because I loved her so much in Lonesome Dove as uh, Lori Darling. I can see that. All right. Uh, let's go. I've got three more here. So Annie. Okay. Uh, I would love uh, for Annie to have been played uh, by, I need some of the sense of woundedness and anger. Uh, Rob. Uh, so Rob, you're you're playing. Um, yes, I am Annie. Yeah, you're Annie. You are perfect. The, the uh, so we have Rob as Annie. Yeah. Different Annie. <laughs> oh shit! Uh, I think. Um, hmm. This is a great question. Would a would maybe a like a Dakota Fanning? Dakota Fanning would be spectacular. That's great. Well, let's let's go with that casting. Okay. Can we get on that? Can we Actually, get on you, the? Actually, you've uh, we... been following up the with the Alienist or watching the Alienist. I believe one of the Fanning sisters, I think, is Dakota Fanning, is on there, and she she nails that. Mm. It is. Um, and see, she I was, was also. I was kind of picturing a Chloe. Uh, what's her name? Is her name Chloe Sevigny? Kardashian. No, not Chloe. Kardashian. No. No. Chloe Savini. Uh, hit girl. Oh, um, Chloe Grace Moretz. Yeah. yeah, that's it. That's it. She would also be excellent. You know who would also be fantastic if uh, was the girl from True Grit, the remake. She was great. Oh yes, she would. Yeah, she was fantastic. She would have played. She would play an excellant Annie. Okay, where are we? Uh, uh, George Miller. 
Uh, George Miller Sr.? Yeah, so he's, he would be a you know small role, but you know maybe a cameo of some oh, sort. Absolutely. Well, if that's the case, let's get Sean Bean in yeah. there. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> we discussed now, poor Sean Bean last episode. Poor Sean Bean. Um, I would probably want someone... Uh, hmm, you know, let's let's give it to an unknown. Yeah, let's give it to an unknown guy with a handsome face, great body, so we can see it in that first chapter. Yep, and then, yeah, and then the uh, the end. Yeah, and of course, Jimmy's favorite, Jeremiah Hart, mm. would be Foghorn Leghorn. <laughs> <laughs> I say, son, I'm played by Mel Blank. <laughs> no, because uh, I have a, I have a. Go ahead. Um, I think that uh, you would need sort of a a craven. Or not crazy, a raven of a human being, someone you know, hunched, spindly. Um, you know, Terrence Stamp would have made a great uh, Jeremiah Hart with sort of the coldness and those big green blue eyes of his. Um, but we, of course, we would all be waiting for him to say, "Not is it Terrence Stamp that played Zod?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I think so. yeah. Um, he would have been a great Jeremiah Hart. Yeah, I can. Uh, yeah, I'm looking at uh, as you were saying the names. I was kind of looking at them, and yeah, I I think that's you know your characters. <laughs> well, I did spend a considerable yeah. amount of time with these people, right? You talked about your first experience with horror. Mm-hmm. I had a a similar experience. Mine was, of course, Night of the Living Dead, but another one was the transformation scene from my favorite horror movie of all time, An American Werewolf in London. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. Unparalleled uh in terms of werewolf films. Yeah, I I mean, there's the howling, there there are a couple of more out there, but I, I don't think it can be touched. Aside from your horror experience, uh, do you have any well, I guess maybe it could be well, it had an auto rewind feature, but any personal experience with the supernatural that you just can't explain? Um, when I was a kid and very, uh, uh, influenceable, uh, I used to, uh, oh man. So when we also, when we were living in Snyder, Texas, but in a different house, my brother and I shared a room in a basement, um, and, uh, we had a water bed and, uh, I was a, a boy of, you know, I had a lot of interests, a lot of curiosities. And so I asked myself, what would it be like if I put a bunch of staples in my waterbed? And I found out. <laughs> and I found That's out. A great idea. It was, uh, you'll see, you'll see a, a, a track here of questionable actions through a mislived life. But, uh, so I put a bunch of holes in the waterbed, water started coming out. So ipso facto, we could no longer sleep in the basement, uh, in the ruined bed. So for a few nights, uh, while my parents were trying to figure out what the sleeping situation was going to be, um, my brother and I had to sleep on the sofa. He was on the sofa and I was on the love seat in the living room. Well, uh, one night I was sleeping and the love seat looked directly past the sofa into the kitchen. And I could have sworn that I saw this small figure advancing on me every time I opened my eyes. And it was this dark figure that was a little bit darker than shadow, um, if that makes sense. Sort of a uh, a palpable void that kept advancing. Okay. And, and uh, every time I would shut my eyes, it would go back 
to where it started, but then it would start to advance again. Um, and that was probably the first time in my life where I was so afraid that I was genuinely trembling, uh, and could not stop. Like my teeth were chattering, um, and I couldn't get up. I was frozen in terror. Um, and, uh, so I kept closing my eyes and it would go further back. So I closed my eyes and then my brother, who I should, honestly, this is probably because he made me watch that stupid movie. <laughs> um, uh, and so I shook him. I was like, cr- I, I, I was, I, I was like, there's someone in there. There's someone here. There's a tiny person, which must've sounded ridiculous at the time. There's a ghost in the house. There's a ghost. Um, he freaked out. Uh, there was no ghost, uh, but, uh, naturally, of course the ghost decides to go away the minute I bring someone else into it. Stupid ghost of playing course. pranks on us but all that, the time. Stupid right. ghost. And, uh, that's, that's, pro- <laughs> that's probably the, the only time where I felt that there was a genuine unexplainability to what I was, sen- to the sensation I was feeling. Do I think that was a ghost? No, I think I was nine uh and i and i think i worked myself up into such an anxiety and panic that i was seeing this thing but i will tell you this man there are nights when i'm lying in bed and i start looking into a dark corner and i keep waiting for that figure to slowly draw itself out and reappear (laughs) nice yeah i hear that well (laughs) Up next on the show, we're going to have an interview with the ghost. We have a surprise guest. <laughs> yeah, we have a surprise guest. We're going to interview the ghost that stalked C.S. Humble. And behind all door number ago. two, do you recognize this voice? <laughs> I had a uh, I had a recurring dream. Uh, actually, it had to deal with a, a couch as well. For some reason, I when I was for a very brief period of time when I was when I was real little, I felt like more of an adult sleeping on the couch. I guess because my dad used to pass out, uh, you know, watching TV shows and everything. Um, but I had a recurring dream where uh, a little girl came out of the kitchen mm-hmm. with a knife. And my I told my dad about this. And he said, well, you know, son, if you have a dream three times, it comes through. <laughs> so. All right. Um, I've never I've never slept on a couch since then. I had the dream twice. I guess that's recurring, but uh, it was enough for me to uh, be absolutely terrified. Thanks, Dad. Yeah. Thanks, Dennis. <laughs> and by door number three, it's that girl from your childhood. I said, I said, it's that girl, son. <laughs> nice girl, but she keeps killing everybody she knows. <laughs> so I, I think, guys, I think it's uh, time for the question. What can I say? I guess one more thing. I think I need to elaborate. Uh, we teased this in our last episode to stick around and find out the part that made me. <laughs> so we, we talk about chasing that sensation. Um, and I always feel to be, you know, 34, 34 years old and to be scared, genuinely scared by a movie, by a book, a comic book. I'm all, I always feel thankful for that because it doesn't happen as much anymore. Uh, but the part where Mark Maple is Mark going, Marple. Mark Marple, Mark Marple, <laughs> yeah, is going down into the mine and and lighting, with, you know, with the Larry lamps. the Canary. I, 
Larry the Canary. Not to be confused with Barry Barry. Jerry. (laughs) (laughs) Or the other canary. Or 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 certainly not Jerry the Canary. Um, I'm I'm reading it. His, like, second appearance Mm -hmm. uh, after the situation in between. I'm reading it on my, my Kindle. And I, I, oh, hell, hell no. And I had to <laughs> flip on my reading light behind me. And, and I thank uh, you for that. You're very welcome. I'm so it's, glad you enjoyed it. Now, if if it were, if I actually had a physical copy of the book, I may have thrown it across. <laughs> oh, hell room. no. <laughs> uh, and the only ever book I've done that with was Cujo. I right. threw that mf right across the room. <laughs> right. So. And I think you know, I know the scene in Cujo that you're talking about. Is it when the boy is sitting, he's lying in bed and he look, he's looking into the closet? Yeah. That's, yeah. And he threw it on the wall because it was like throwing <laughs> it at Cujo. Get out. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm very glad that, uh, that that scene in the book affected you. You know, that's the writer's goal. I think any writer worth their salt, the goal is to affect the reader in a way that will leave them, um, not, it doesn't always have to be changed, but affected. Um, and so it's it's very delightful to hear that that scene in particular. Yeah, I, I had some concerns you. about the canary, yeah. even though like I couldn't say his name correctly. <laughs> that's how much it affected. There, thank you. There was a moment when writing that scene, I was like, "What is this guy doing? <laughs> this is not what you do in this situation." But I thought, "Well, and see, he's and see, that it. would be the part in the movie yeah. where people are going, don't go in there.'" <laughs> <laughs> yelling at the screen right. what are you doing don't go in there stop stop mark larry don't do it and and if if i i could cast that role of mark marple real sure. quick it would go have ahead. to be Cle- cletus butler <laughs> from the simpsons <laughs> absolutely just one animated it's, character it's really interesting the author Perfect. saying that though that you know that don't go in there because it could be like why didn't you finish your book yet? Well, there was a character that was going to go in there, and he really shouldn't, so I just stopped. He turned around, went home, the book was over. <laughs> right, and he lived happily <laughs> ever after, said no one who ever wrote a horror story. <laughs> okay, so the name of the show, our show, is Give Me Five Podcast, and the reason why is because after we talk about something, we make people give lists of five things that are the, either the best, the worst, the most interesting, the whatever. And I think it's time for that. Give me five question, and we're gonna, well, we can, okay. we're all gonna answer it, and uh, we're also gonna, of course, make our guest C.S. Umble also uh, answer the question as well. So the question this week is: What are your five best Western horror stories? They don't have to be classic Western; it can be modern day Western. But the five best Western horror horror stories. Who wants to go first? I always volunteer, <laughs> so I'll go ahead and do it again. So my top five, um, this list actually came relatively easy for me. Um, number five mm. is the dark tower. Mm. So, and I put particularly, uh, with the Western setting was the gunslinger, which Fantastic. we talked about earlier and wizard and glass, wizard and glass. Right. <clears throat> um, number four, I am putting massacre at yellow hill. Wow. Thank and, you. Uh, thank you. Um, I'm, I'm hoping, you know, that that world, you know, I could see that moving up in my list, you know, so I can't wait for what's next. Number three is the first movie, um, in the From Dusk Till Dawn mm-hmm. franchise mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with 
George Clooney and the previously mentioned Quentin Tarantino. And and Selma Hayek and an albino python. <laughs> now, right? And number two is going to be uh, Stakeland. Underrated film, underappreciated, yeah. powerful. I I think so. Um, you know, it, if you look in the description, it says they, you know, the a young man travels with a mysterious companion or Mister across the heartlands of America. But there, there, a lot of that is very set in your kind of wild west. It's post-apocalyptic vampire um, extravaganza. Yeah, <clears throat> but. You know, a lot of that, it takes place under gaslight and, and dancing and, you know, playing music around the fire. So, like you said, underrated. Uh, it's a great movie. Uh, could be my number one. But my number one is going to be Red Dead Redemption, Undead Nightmare. Mm, fantastic. Because, man, that was so much fun. Yeah, I have not played that. <laughs> you are a fool. And I don't like you. You oh. are a fool. Well, I got—I wow. got to admit, Jimmy, I'm a little surprised that because because isn't that um, that graphic novel that you've been talking to us about a couple of times um, like a horror that's set in the old west as well? Would that be Redlands? Yes, that is actually based in Florida. Oh, see, because from the description, the old west. <laughs> but from, right from the description that, that you were given, I I kind of thought it was it had like a old west setting to it, but yeah. It has a very dusty kind of feel to it, um, but yeah, that does take place in Florida. Um, I guess I'll go ahead and go next. Um, I uh, I'll start go with ahead. number five. Uh, a, a large portion of my list is movies because that's kind of my thing. Um, but I'll start with number five, the only non movie on my list, and that's going to be Red Dead Redemption: uh, A Dead Nightmare. Um, I actually got into Red Dead. I didn't get into Red Dead Redemption when it initially came out. I got into Red Dead Redemption when Undead Nightmare around the same time that Undead Nightmare came out. So I did get to play it a little bit. Um, But that that that's why it's only ranked at number five, because I didn't play much of it. Um, But it was it was actually really well done. I liked it a lot. Um, At number four, I'll probably go with Bone Tomahawk. Mm. Uh, Kurt Russell. I mean, (laughs) right. Um, at number three, I'll probably throw in Ravenous. Mm. Um, I thought it was, I thought it was a pretty underrated movie. Um, and it was weird because there wasn't a whole lot to it. And I know it was kind of set, it was set during the civil war, but it was at like, uh, a, uh, a civil war fort out in, you know, the, the, the wood walls and everything. Um, just really well done involving cannibalism and whatnot, but yeah, the Wendigo. That's uh, a, f- a few things about that. One that was going to be on my list, but I've talked about it two other times, so I oh, okay. didn't. But also, it's there's a new show on Netflix called Ravenous. Oh, and as a as a result of it, people are finding the movie by accident, which is also on Netflix, and you're seeing an uptick of people being like on Reddit. Hell yeah, I love cannibalism. Reddit's not quite that <laughs> well, that bad, but gotta eat me some people. It's people are like, why have I never? Why have I never uh, heard about this movie before? So that's it's rising up the list for people. Continue. Sorry. Yeah, it's a it's 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 pretty underrated. I I, I did like it. Um, number two, I'm gonna go with Near Dark. Mm, yes, sir. Um, yeah, great, great, great stuff. But my number one is gonna be the original from Dusk Till Dawn. Powerful. I I, I absolutely loved that movie. 
It was really well done. It's one of the few Quentin Tarantino movies that I actually liked. Um, well, it wasn't a Quentin Tarantino just, movie. <laughs> just, it just had Quentin Tarantino in it. Well, it, it had yeah, Quentin Tarantino in it. So, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, because I don't like Make most more of horror stuff. films, Robert Rodriguez. Exactly. But yeah, that that's that's going to be my number one. Okay, I'm going to... I guess I'll go next. Uh, number five is a game called Dark Watch, which was about 2005 PlayStation 2 or... Th- yeah, I think PlayStation 2 game. It was a first-person shooter horror western game. A lot of can, uh, skeleton miners. Yeah, I can see the cover of that in my head. I was working at GameStop at the time. Yeah, I, I actually was... I went to GDC conference and actually met the people that made it, and they showed how they, like, did scares. It was one of those first games that, like, if you would look one direction and then turn around and look back, they would do the jump scare mm. in it. The, the one get the art director would say, hey, look over there. And then one of those environment artists would jump out and go, blah. Yeah, pretty much, yeah. <laughs> just, just, blah. Digitally. <laughs> uh, my number four is a comic. It is the uh, series Severed by Scott Snyder, which is, uh, it's uh, hobos, uh, murderous yes. hobos. So, and it, it I, it's one of those I can't read straight through. I have to kind of do like one or two episodes tonight. That's <laughs> the name of our punk band that breaks up at the end of every episode. <laughs> Murderous Hobos. Murderous Hobos. <laughs> uh, from Dust Till Dawn. That's the name of our episode. <laughs> exactly. From Dust Till Dawn. The, it's really two yes. movies in one. It's a, a crime movie and a, and a horror movie. Uh, Bone Tomahawk, as previously mentioned. Mm. I, the, the term I use a lot on the show is slow burn but you know it builds a world and then it tears it down really right and my last one is probably something a lot of people don't know about well i'm guessing you might but uh the sixth gun another comic fantastic comic book yes colin bunn brian hurt it's about a 50 issue series um it's set right after the civil war and it has six guns with special powers and you know the if those guns combine or whatever if the they the the guns open up some bad things and the series is great it's got adventure it's got horror it's got mythology and it was a really fun read and i really wish that it got option for a tv show or a anything right so so that is that is my number 1 well you guys you guys have crushed crushed the list here you've got some of the some of the tried and true favorites i'm going to add a few here so I'm, for my number 5 i want to i want everyone who listens to the podcast to go to amazon and type in Vermilion. Vermilion, like the color. It's a novel by Molly Tanzer. Um, it's one of my favorite weird Western novels um, where you've got a lot of psychopomp action uh, with the main character, Lou Merriweather. Um, and uh, Molly Tanzer really delivers in that novel. Again, it's called Vermilion. Uh, maybe to go off the little beaten path here, I'm going to say Jonah Hex, both the Jimmy Palmiotti run and the Joe R. Lansdale run. Did you guys ever see the DC showcase, those short films that they did? I think I did. There's, I I don't remember were that. They, no. Were they animated? They are animated, yeah. yeah. Okay. Joe R. Lansdale wrote the Jonah Hex one of those, and it's spectacular. It's basically Jonah Hex distilled down to a 10-minute cartoon episode, and it's amazing. That sounds extraordinarily familiar. I can seem to recall my experience with Jonah Hex being a short film. Yes, um, that is spectacular. Uh, to throw some other ones at you, The Adventures of Briscoe County Jr. Yes, Bruce Campbell. <laughs> Bruce Campbell. He made the list. He makes the list. Um, uh 
God, so underrated. Westworld, currently on HBO. Spectacularly well-written okay. show. I'm also yep. going to throw the old tabletop role-playing game Deadlands and Deadlands Reloaded at you because that's the best, uh, or I should say the most popular weird Western tabletop role-playing uh, game that is available. Um, you guys hit the Dark Tower. I mentioned earlier The Burrowers. I think that that's an underappreciated film. And that's one that I've come up, that I came across when we when I was looking some of the stuff up because you know there's so right. much, but um and and I wanted to check that out and I didn't get a chance to because it's got a lot of really good uh really good uh reviews on it. I think day. it's 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 really really well done. I I would put it just below Bone Tomahawk, um just barely below. Even but Bone Tomahawk is just so brutal that it's hard to sit through multiple times. Um. But I'm going to say I'm going to go for my number one, uh, which I know I've listed more than five already, uh, but some of them are repeats. So I'm going to take number one. The singular, my singular favorite weird Western that's ever been written is Cormac McCarthy's Blood Meridian or A Red Evening in the West. Um, and I will plug it only – the best thing I could ever say about Blood Meridian is that it is not an American novel – it is the only other American novel like Moby Dick that is not a novel. It is a force of nature. Um, mm. It is, by my estimation, I, I like to put it like this. If I wanted to teach people the American language, I would use Moby Dick. If I wanted to teach people about the American character and the American character specifically during the time of the West, I would use Blood Meridian. You are adding to my list of books again. Yeah. I, I haven't read that. Damn it. <laughs> if you like The Road, The Road is the junior varsity team version of the depravity Ooh. that happens in Blood Meridian. I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> um, I'm frail. I'm frail. What, what are you you can't handle The Road if you're frail. <laughs> no. It's so brutal. But um, definitely um, – it it is uh, Blood Meridian is a book that changes you. All right, I have so many tabs open right now. <laughs> so do I. I've got like a, I've got like scraps of paper all over my desk with like names of authors and books written on them and stuff. It's it's messy. Okay, well now it's your time. Other than selling Blood Meridian to people, it's your time to plug stuff. Oh, um, well, first off, uh, pe people can get uh, the Massacre at Yellow Hill um, via Amazon, Barnes and Noble. Um, you can also go to um, blackrosewriting.com. Uh, you can order the book directly from the publisher. Um, I, I also have some book tour dates that are on my Amazon author page. That's C.S. Umble. Um, so if you are in any of those areas, I would love to meet you, sign the book. You can also check out my blog, which is uh, www.csumble.wordpress.com. Um, you can find me on Twitter at, 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 at CS Umble. And you can also catch me normally every Tuesday on the Here We Go podcast. Um, and you can also find us on iTunes at Here We Go podcast where you can subscribe, rate, and review. Awesome. We will definitely be linking those on our social media pages. And we've, I speak for the, rest of us, I, I'd say when we've had an absolute blast talking to you and 
thank you so much for sharing, you know, your thoughts on, on the process and, you know, so many other things with us. It's, it's been a real pleasure talking to you. It's been fantastic. Yes. Of course, guys, anytime, um, you know, anytime you guys want to chat, just let me know. And, uh, I really appreciate you, um, each of you, you know, going to Amazon and, uh, dropping a review for the book. It's also on Goodreads now. So if you guys want to copy pasta that, that also helps. And let people know about the book. It helps me the most when you let people know how much you enjoyed it. Absolutely. All three of our listeners definitely will definitely know. know. <laughs> <laughs> That's where everybody starts, my man. So, uh, yeah, thank you again. Great. Thank you so much, guys. Have a great night. I tell you, the internet doesn't work. It's like a series of tubes, I tell you. <laughs> wow. And that got recorded. It, it did. It's a nice podcast, but he doesn't even think. <laughs> <laughs> nice boy, but he doesn't listen to a word you say. Greg's going to edit some of that but out. But it'll be but on I, the outtakes. No, thank you. That's Oh, absolutely. <laughs> Probably.